to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, BSM. Welcome to another Man of Bible Study. We're going to do this one uh, by satellites, which actually means that I recorded this yesterday. But if you haven't noticed already, uh, the leadership room is being used right now because most of us on staff are at a regional BSM director's uh, meeting. So you can pray, pray for us in that. That's usually a really encouraging time, a time where we get a lot of work done and uh, just get to talk to other BSM directors because there's BSMs all over the state and we're all in uh, different positions but then in similar positions and so we get to pray together and grow together and learn from each other so you can pray for that but uh, we're still going to continue our study in the book of Genesis so if you grab your Bible open it up to chapter 12 and let me pray and we'll get started. God I thank you for your word that can unite us even when we are not uh, in the same room together. God, because as we share in this faith together, we participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are all uh, in fellowship with one another because of the blood that he shed for us, that we are all a new people, a new creation. We are all in the new Adam because we have put our faith in Christ. And God, as that's the same faith that Abraham had uh, in Colonel, we have seen it fully realized in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would help all of our faith to increase. If there's anyone in here that does not yet have that faith, would you help them to believe by the power of your spirit acting through your word? And would we be blessed by this time so that we can be a blessing to all the nations? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we uh, jumped into chapter 12, which is a major break in the book of Genesis. So usually when people divide up the book of Genesis, they divide it, uh, Genesis has 50 chapters, they divide it from 1 to 11, and then 12 through the rest of the book. So 1 through 11 has dealt with thousands of years of biblical history very, very shortly. We got the creation of the, the world, the cosmos, and um, the creation of mankind, the Adam, and we saw the role that Adam was supposed to play in creation to be the image of God, to bring about the glory of God throughout the creation, to be uh, subduing and having dominion over the earth. We saw Adam fail, and we saw the result of that failure of the fall as it started resulting in um, in this not totally entirely evil, but certainly not perfectly good mankind spreading through the earth. And as they spread, they spread not only industry and creativity and civilization and even faith for some people, but it also spread violence and sexual immorality, and ultimately God says he looks at the hearts of all mankind and it is evil continually, and so we saw him um, wipe out that, that fallen race with the exception of one man who he chose, one family whom he chose, Noah, and he saved Noah in order to use Noah as a, as a means of um, sort of recreating what had been lost in the fall. So Noah was a new Adam, but then we saw Noah fail. And as the sons of Noah spread, they, the, the sons of Noah, though they were um, 
better because of this new covenant that they had, that there was a new system of government, that there was a new kind of way of uh, mankind relating that, that would put a check on the violence that was raging before. Still, it was not perfect. And so those nations uh, were scattered at the Tower of Babel. And so there was no longer that unity. And so then we see... Um, that, that the new plan through Adam, the new Noah in Adam, was still failing. And so now we see in chapter 12, God choosing one man of all of those nations. And he says in chapter 12, we'll look at this as just a recap in, in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chooses one man, Abram, and says, I'm going to make a whole nation. We just saw all the nations being dispersed. I'm going to make one nation out of you, different from all these other nations. And I am going to do a few things with that nation. I'm going to bless that nation. And I am going to give that nation a, a land, a promised land. Okay, where he is, where Abram is going to go, and in that nation, I am going to bless all of the other nations of the earth. So we saw the unraveling of the the nations and their being mutually blessed by one another. And God says, "I have a plan in Abram to create a new nation that will bless all of the other nations of the earth." And so we saw that through that, uh, or the way that God is going to bring that about is through offspring descended from Abram. And as we've seen. That, that is a uh, tall order because Abram is 75 and his wife is 65. But somehow God plans on using these, uh, this man. And then we also saw that there was a, uh, an imperative attached to a promise. So God says, go and I will bless you. Go from where you are to where, you, uh, where I am sending you. And, and the response that Abram has is just belief in that or faith in that or not. Okay, so it's not that... Um, God is saying, go and if you have faith, then I will bless you. He's saying, hey, if you have faith, this is, this is what I'm offering to you. So do you believe that I'm offering this to you? So it's not a works righteousness. It's a, it is a uh, blessing based only on faith, on this gift that God is offering that is just received by going, by, by faith. Okay, so we see God asking Abram to go. And in verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Canaan is the promised land, okay? It's today it's the Israel-Palestine, okay? Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still, going toward the Negev. So there is this promised land that God has said is... Uh, He's going to give to the offspring of Abram. And there's a couple of problems with that, as we saw right here, that's calling into question already these promises that God is making. The, the land is already possessed by Canaanites. It's already possessed by a whole bunch of nations that have fortified cities, that have whole armies. And so that is a 
wait, God, you're going to give me this land? This land is filled with bad guys already. You know, what it, how's that going to work? And then the other thing is God is saying, I'm going to give this to your offspring, but Abram has no offspring. So God is making these promises that it is hard to believe in. There is not a whole lot of evidence, external evidence to say uh, that, oh yeah, this will be easy. In, in fact, it looks impossible. So God is making impossible promises. And the, what we're going to see for the next several chapters is Abram relating to this God that makes impossible promises and God asking Abram to believe in these impossible promises and in the God that can make and keep impossible promises. And this is so important for us because our faith is built on seemingly impossible promises. That, that God will... Um, forgive us of our sins and raise us up from the dead, that we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth, a, a new promised land, okay? God is making these promises and we are responding in faith, okay? Saying God, it's God is saying, I'm already giving these things to you, but you have to believe that you're gonna get them, okay? That, that you have to go from where, I, where you are and, and put your faith in me and go where I'm telling you to go, but I've got this stuff stored up to you, but we have no real evidence I mean, we do. Jesus was raised from the dead. But besides that, we don't have... Um, it is a struggle for us to walk in faith in these promises that seem so impossible. And this is, this is uh, the state that Abram finds himself in, that, that he is having to walk in faith in these impossible promises. And so what I love about Abram is that he is um, far from perfect, okay? And we see that. The same with Noah. Even though it said Noah was a blameless man, he was righteous in his generation, that he, was, uh, he walked with the Lord. We saw um, Noah also was, uh, got, got drunk when he um, made, made the vineyard. Remember that? So we saw that Noah was not a perfect person. We're going to see a lot more about Abram, and we're going to see that Abram is not a perfect person. That Abram, um, though, if you took it on the whole of his life, he lived a very long time, um, there, there are aren't that many instances over decades and decades. So I think we can still see, yeah, he was a righteous man, but he makes a lot of mistakes. He, he has unbelief. He lacks faith quite often. And we get to see how God relates to him in his lack of faith. And more importantly, what we see is this relationship that God has with Abram is a relationship where God is helping Abram grow in his faith. And this is what God is also doing to each of us because um, not only is God asking us to have faith, but God is also going to work in us to grow our faith. That even faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2, even faith is a gift from God. That, that God is going to help us have faith. And the way that God is going to help us have faith is he's going to just consistently reveal himself to us. One of, the, one of the ideas of faith is faith really is only, we can only put our faith in things that warrant it, and something that warrants our faith. Now, does God warrant our faith? Absolutely. Okay, God is the only thing truly that we can put our faith in, but how do we know that God is who we can put our faith in? We don't actually have a blind faith in God. We have our faith in God because God has revealed himself to us, just like he's revealing himself to Abram. God reveals himself to us and teaches us what God is like. God acts in our lives and speaks through his word in ways where we are grown in our confidence. And all of that is grace. God doesn't have to do that. Okay, I was just, it's just like the same way um, when you are first dating someone new, that 
Um, you know, take, take it, for instance, the guy. When the guy is um, dating someone new, um, if, if she's a godly woman, you know what she doesn't need? She doesn't need that guy, right? And so what the guy is trying to do is just to reveal more of himself and, and to show her not that he is, you know, the answer to all of her problems, but that he, um, he is someone that she can trust and someone that she should love and someone that she can be in a relationship with. And so he is just revealing himself to her. He is pursuing her. He is, um, he is getting her to know him, just like he's trying to get to know her. And, and as that relationship unfolds and as she comes to know more and more of him, then she will say, okay, not that I need you, but I can... I can trust you and I want to be in a relationship with you. Well, that's um, kind of what it's like, although we do need God and we do, but God is still patient. God is a gentleman and he is revealing himself as someone that we can put our trust in. Now, he's doing it one way with Abram because Abram doesn't have the Bible, okay? But with us, we have Abram's story as a way that we get to learn about God. But even in our own relationship with God, this is how it works, isn't it? That we go through situations and we learn that we can trust God as we go through those situations. So the next few chapters are um, God walking with Abram, even in Abram's unbelief, even in Abram's lack of faith, to grow his faith. So in verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. What land? The promised land. Okay, Canaan. So there's a famine in the land. That's good coffee. This is from the study where Landon Shoemaker works. Go see him and get some coffee. So there's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It's important to point out, did God tell Abram to go down into Egypt? No. Okay, Abram um, on his own decided to go down into Egypt. A famine is a difficult circumstance, okay? We we'd probably have no idea what that's like. But if there's a famine in the land, things get really hard. And as soon as what we're tempted to do when things get hard in our life is to look for solutions to fix the problem. Sometimes we say, surely God would not want me to go through this. And so we just try to look for solutions to get out of the problem. And so Abram is in this land where there's a famine. And he's like, this isn't, this isn't what God promised me. This isn't the blessing that God promised me. So I need to look elsewhere for a solution. And so he goes to Egypt. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say instead that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So they're going into this land, and Abram realizes that going into this land, even though it is um, where he would want to, uh, where he thinks he can find a solution to his problem, he also sees that it comes with its own dangers. And so, as, as it so often does, when we kind of go away from God's will and we start doing our own thing, then we have to just get desperate to try and fix more of these problems that arise out of that. And so one of the ways that he tries to fix this problem is, is he tells uh, his wife that if they try to take you from me, lie, say that you're my sister so that they won't kill me and, uh, and they will, uh, it will go well with me. And so you can even hear in that a little bit of selfishness, right? Like um, God is not very concerned with Sarai and her well-being, or Abram is not very concerned with Sarai and her well-being. He's concerned with himself and taking care of himself. But that might also, we might also be able to read the lines that it's not just Abram being selfish, but it's also Abram thinking in his head, wait, 
God said, God made these promises that um, the world was going to be blessed through me. If I'm dead, that can't happen. And so some people don't wonder if this is also Abram kind of working out what God has said. And he's saying, well, I have to help God keep me alive because I'm the, the way that God is going to bless the whole world. Um, and so, again, but sometimes we do that to God, too, don't we? Where we say, instead of uh, waiting and listening for what God would tell us to do, we think we have to help God out. And so, maybe that's a little bit of what Abram has going on. But either way, he puts Sarai, his wife, into a terrible position, although they're not lying. We'll see that later, that they actually are um, sort of brother and sister through different uh, marriages. That's normal for back then. Um, but either way, this is not... This is not the right way for a husband to treat his wife. And we're going to see that God cares much more about Sarai at this point than Abram does. Verse 14, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And Abram had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now this is crazy that um, Abram is walking in, uh, I don't know that we would say disobedience, but in self-reliance, which is a kind of disobedience. But Abram's not listening to the Lord. He's doing his own thing. He's lying. He's um, sneaking around. He's looking after his own interest. And yet, it leads to him being blessed. What did God say that he was going to do for Abram? He was going to bless him. Now, does that mean that God is condoning what Abram's done? No, but it means that God is sovereign over everything, and even in the things that are wrong, God brings them together to accomplish his purposes, namely blessing Abram. But then also, God knows that his plan involves Sarai too, and God cares for Sarai. So look what happens in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now we don't have more time to reflect on all of the moral principles that can be pulled out of this and, and principles for marriage and things like that. But the big thing that we should focus on for our time today is, what must Abram be thinking about God now? Okay? Um, Abram went on his own, wandered off out of the place that God was going to give him, went on his own into Egypt, got himself in a bad situation almost, and yet God protected him from that. God uh, wouldn't even let Pharaoh touch Sarai, his wife. So where God is, where Abram is trying to protect himself, now he sees that um, God will protect his whole family, that God is protecting all of them, and that not only has God ended up with Abram being blessed, but he has uh, protected them from anything bad happening, and look what happened. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, back into the Promised Land. Okay, so Abram is uh, saying, well, this was a situation where I thought I needed to protect myself, and yet God did more than I thought I, you know, more than I could do, and God has blessed me and protected me. Look at verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So you can see geographically, it, there was a point where he was in the heart of the, of the promised land, and he moved down into the Negev, which is in the desert, and then he moves on into Egypt, which is um, very far away. And now he's moving back into the heart of the promised land. So geographically, we can see him centering his faith 
back into this place. So verse 4, to, he went back to the place where he had made an altar at the first. So he's being restored. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with him, uh, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. So, that, so Abram and Lot, his nephew, by function of being in Abram's family, they were both being so blessed that they, there wasn't room for both of them. Their possessions were so great, the end of verse 6, that they could not dwell together. Verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So we said God's promise to Abram involved blessing, involved offspring, and involved land. Well, one of those is clearly happening, that they're so blessed now that they can't even live uh, the same way that they were because they've gained so much possession. Yet, there are still enemies in the land, and Abram has no offspring. Verse 14, So the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Oh, sorry, I totally skipped a part. Verse 8, that's where we are. We're in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Because there are so many of us, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now this, I think, is really interesting. A lot of people see this as an act of faith on Abram's part, that Abram and Lot are kind of standing um, in right on the boundary in the middle of the promised land. And Abram says to Lot, hey, there's so many of us, we need to go our separate ways. You pick away. Now, um, if, if Lot goes one way, if Lot chooses the left, then he will actually go into the promised land, which means Abram will have to go away from the promised land. But if Lot chooses away from the promised land, then Abram goes into the promised land. And so a lot of people say that Abram has already seen God acting sovereignly to preserve this promise. And Abram knows that one of those promises of God is the land. And so it's kind of like he's entrusting this to a coin toss and saying, well, I already know which way Lot's going to pick because God has promised me this land to the left. So verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, so that's away from the promised land, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Spoilers. Okay? So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east, away from the promised land. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is all foreshadowing for stuff that we are going to see much later. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, so after Lot has gone towards Sodom and Gomorrah, uh-oh, Abram is in the promised land in Canaan, and he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So again, we saw the three promises, the blessing, the offspring, and the land, okay, only one of those has been completed, but God is coming back through and he's reaffirming the other two, that you will have offspring and you will have all of this land, even though that seems impossible. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Chapter 14, in the days of 
Amthrothel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, and Shedar Laramar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimber, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zeor. The, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings of the the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim who were uh, in Ham, the Emim and Shavakiriathayim and the Horites and all the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamor. All that saying is, there was, uh, actually this would be pretty epic. If they made movies, this would be like the Lord of the Rings and um, these, you know, this great battle because what this is describing is kind of a confederation of um, five kings versus another confederation of, I think, four kings. And what it is is they are um, fighting each other. These, these like, joined-together armies are fighting against each other in the Promised Land. Now, Abram has nothing to do with this. Lot, however, has moved into the land where all of this stuff is happening. So in chapter 8, or in verse 8, Then the king of Sodom the king of, and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zeor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amrapel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And who lived near Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot's, or Abram, Abram's nephew, Lot. In verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, brother Eshcol, and of Aner. And these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So, there's this big fight Lot got caught up in the middle of the fight, and as uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah lost, these other kings came through, and they took Lot prisoner with all of his possessions. Somebody tells Abram what happened, and so Abram feels this sense of obligation to, re to rescue his kinsmen, okay, which is the closest alliance that he has. And so Abram gets a force together. Now, I don't know what's going on in Abram's mind at this point, okay? Um, is he just acting and he's saying, man, I, I don't know how this is going to work, but I've got to do something. I've got to try. This is Lot. Or is he already beginning to show in his heart confidence because he remembers what happened in Egypt. He remembers that um, God did more than he could ever expect. But what we see is that Abram gets 318 people together. And he goes in pursuit of this army of joined-together kings. In verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. 
after his return from the, de- the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Abram goes out, fights, wins, incredibly, rescues Lot, comes back. The king of Sodom is so happy, okay, and so he comes out. But then there's another city that we haven't seen yet, the city of Salem, which is also becomes the city of Jerusalem, okay, the city of Salem. And the king of Salem is a man named Melchizedek. And as was common at this time, sometimes the king was also the high priest of that city's Religion. So at this time, there's all these different kind of separate city-states, and every city had its own king. Well, Melchizedek, king of Salem, was the priest of this god called God Most High, or um, El Elyon. And uh, this priest of God Most High comes out, and he blesses Abram. He says, you are blessed by this god, God Most High. And he, this god, God Most High, has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then, what does it say at the end of verse 20? Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal or a strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So this priest of God Most High, Melchizedek, says, Abram, you've been blessed by this God, El, Elion, and he has defeated your enemies. And whether or not this is the, the same God, Abram assumes that it is, and he says, yeah, my God, Yahweh, is God Most High. And so he sacrificed, he gives a tenth of his Offering to this priest of Yahweh, and and uh, and says that in effect that this victory that I have is not mine, but this is because God is blessing me. Okay, this is Abram responding in faith that I went out and did this incredible thing, was given this victory because of Yahweh, my God, who has made these promises to me. So Abram is becoming very, very convinced in his faith. And then and I love what it says when they're saying, well, here, you know, take all these possessions. You rescued all this. And Abram, has, Abram says, I don't even want these possessions. I don't want this gift from you because then people might think that I'm being blessed by the king of Sodom. And I want people to know that I'm being blessed by Yahweh. Because what does God promise? That I will be blessed. And in me being blessed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so I want to be blessed by Yahweh, not by anybody else. Very cool. So his faith is growing. Of course, if you are familiar with the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 7 reinterprets everything that's happened with this guy, Melchizedek, and actually says that um, he is a, a type of the one who is to come, of Jesus Christ. There's some really cool connections to that, but here in the text, none of those are apparent. Melchizedek became, uh, as the Old Testament goes on, this figure, Melchizedek, took on a lot of symbolic meaning 
that was reinterpreted to be understood as uh, pointing to Jesus Christ. Here in the text, that's not there. So that would be some great study on your own in Hebrews chapter 7. Look up all this stuff about Melchizedek. It's awesome, but we're going to move on to chapter 15. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Now, God has already proven to be Abram's shield. But, look at what verse 2 says. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram saying, Great, you're my shield. So yes, you are blessing me. I've seen you protecting me. Um, maybe I can even understand now how you could help me gain possession of the promised land because you just helped me whip up on these other kings. So yeah, I can see how you would help me even take possession and defeat all of these other enemies that are in the promised land. But what good is any of that? Because I still don't have a child. And so all these blessings that you've given me won't even continue in my line. They'll continue to this guy, Eliezer, who's a servant in my in my house. He's not even related to me. And so for all the things that Abram has seen, okay, there is still this big and possible promise that he is doubting, that he, he says, I don't have any reason to believe, God, that you can even, even you could make that true. But look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said, this man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And in the Hebrew, that's, that's saying, not just your very own, but like your genetic son, okay? The one that will come out of your loins is literally what it's saying, okay? The one that is coming out of your loins will be your own heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him. As righteousness. Now this is a hugely important verse. It too gets expanded upon throughout the rest of the Bible. But this is the nature of faith. Like in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews would be a great book for you to read alongside these sections of Genesis. The book of Hebrews says that faith is believing in that which you cannot see. Okay, And it's not believing blindly, right? That's not what we're saying. That God is giving us reasons to believe that these things are true. And one of those things is that just God comes back again and again and again and reaffirms these promises. But God is making these promises to Abram. And Abram believes the Lord. And so the Lord looks at Abram's faith. And, Ab and the Lord counts Abram's faith as righteousness. That's huge. Because that's ultimately what all of us needs to be in this relationship with God, with a righteous God, is a righteousness of our own. Okay, you remember, Noah was considered righteous. Why? Because he walked with the Lord, that he believed God, that you too can be counted righteous by faith, by believing in these promises that God will uh, fulfill in Jesus Christ, that he has already uh, made available to you, that that's how you are righteous. And so, all of our righteousness, all of our uh, relationship with God, all of our being uh, made into a new right creation, which is what righteousness means. Righteous means rightness, okay? That all of our being made right with God and being made right for the plan that God has for us is not found by our works, by our fixing ourselves, but it's found by faith in the promises of God who will make everything right again. Abram believed God. It was counted to him 
is righteousness. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What's going on here? So we've already seen that Abram believed God. This has already happened. And now because of this boldness, this belief that Abram has in this relationship that he has with God, when God comes and he says, this is who I am. I am your Lord, the Lord that has acted in this life. Abram has the, the relationship. Actually, that's what the Bible says, that Abram is such friends with God that he says, how, how can I know for sure? Okay, can you, can you help make this promise easier for me to believe? And I love God is so gracious. He says, yes, I would love to. And so he tells him to bring these animals and to cut them in half. What's that about? So we've heard, we already talked quite a bit about covenants in the book of Genesis. This is the traditional, most, um, most familiar form of how you make a covenant. Okay, so remember we said a covenant is a promise between... Uh, in this context, we'll say a promise is, is a promise between a kind of uh, king and with a subject. And the, and the is promise is based on loyalty and um, really loyalty, in, in God's case, it's based on a mutual love. But it's very different from a contract, where a contract says you have 50% of the deal, I have 50% of the deal. A covenant is I, have, I will promise 100% to make these... Um, these promises to you to act this way and loyalty to you, not because you've earned it, but because that is my commitment to you as me being loyal and loving you. And then the subject will say, also, I will commit to do these things this way. Covenants were how um, marriages were gone about. So this actually, what's happening here, is most uh, familiar in the, in the ancient Near East with how marriage works. What would happen is... Um, two families would come together, and, and marriage was much more a, uh, a whole family decision than it was, you know, the way that we do it now, or it's, you know, romantic comedies, and I'm going to, you know, oh, I love this guy, he makes me feel good, and I don't care what anybody says, we're going to, you know, we're going to make it work. This is a family decision, and so the families would come together, and the families would make a covenant with each other. They would make promises to each other of loyalty that says, I will be my... My family will be loyal to your family. Um, my son will be loyal to your wife. And they will love each other and they will protect this covenant relationship. They will act in a marriage, um, not based on the, the loyalty of the other person, but based on the promises that they're just supposed to make to each other. But the way that covenants also work is covenants come with um, blessings and curses, okay? And so the cursed aspect, that's why there's these animals is they would cut them in half, and they would, literally what it says is they would cut the, the, this calf in half, or this whatever, you know, a goat or whatever it is, they would cut this animal in half, right down the middle, and then split it apart, like this. And they would like drag it apart like that on the ground, and what would be in between is they split up all the guts, all the gross stuff, blood, everything. And what the, the two fathers of these families, when they come together, would do is they would hold hands. These patriarchs of these families would hold hands, and they would walk through the pieces of uh, these sacrificed animal. And what would be happening is they're walking in between those two pieces, and they're wearing sandals, and it's 
dirt and sands and they've got these long robes that they would be getting blood and guts all over their feet and all over their robes. And what they're saying when they do that is they're invoking a curse upon themselves where it says, if uh, my son or daughter is unfaithful in this covenant, let this happen to me, what has happened to this animal. This happens all over the place. Um, really, actually, the word in Hebrew for make a covenant is cut a covenant. Because this was the way that this is the symbol. Remember we said covenants always come with a sign. Um, in the Noahic covenant, the sign was a rainbow. This, this sign, generally, of an earthly human covenant is a sacrificed animal which is invoking a curse. Let what happened to this animal happen to me if I fail to uphold uh, the obligations that I've made to you in this covenant. Okay? So they're both mutually promising to make these covenants. There's the promise of blessing resulting from those this mutual um, covenant, but then if someone fails to obey that end of their covenant, they're invoking a curse on themselves and saying, let that happen. So this is the crazy thing. Remember what we said with Noah, that God didn't invent covenants. He did in the fact that God invented, you know, everything. And But you know what I'm saying, that God, that covenants were a man-made structure that God is appropriating, just like God is appropriating the use of language to actually talk to Abram, okay, he is appropriating a specific uh, cultural symbol, this covenant, to give Abram more reasons to trust him. Because it all comes back to it. Abram says, how am I supposed to know that you're, you're going to do this? And God says, okay, you're familiar with the concept of a covenant, okay, you know how a covenant works, I'm going to make a covenant with you. So grab these animals, cut them in half. So as soon as he tells Abram to do that, Abram's thinking like, wait, this is, this is just like a covenant. And so Abram's going to think, okay, so we're making this arrangement where we're going to be mutually loyal to each other and um, we're invoking curses on each other. Okay, I got it. And so he's got everything set up and it's, you know, and this is really happening. And he always says the birds came down and Abram's chasing the birds away. But then in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So these, this is the terms of God's covenant with Abram. This is him reaffirming and um, putting more onto the promises that God made, the promises of uh, offspring. Okay, so it says, know for certain that you will have offspring. But then here's what's going to happen to this offspring, that they will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, that's Egypt. So remember that this is being read by the generation that came out of Egypt, um, or that's about to go into the promised land. But then it says, but I promise too, not only will your offspring go into this land that's not theirs, but they're going to come back in, and they will take possession of this land with, with great possessions, and they're going to be a, a nation. And um, God says that he is going to... Uh, bless Abram with old age and that this is all going to happen. So he's saying, here's, the, here's what I'm promising to you. Here's what I'm going to be loyal to do to you is I'm going to be loyal to um, not only bless you, but to bless your offspring, to care for your offspring the same way that I cared for you. And it's cool. Abram went down to Egypt and God cared for him when he was in Egypt and brought him out. And God is saying Israel, the nation of Israel is going to be hearing this promise and saying, wow, this is still, and because of God's 
covenant with Abraham, this is still a promise that holds true to us today, um, the nation of Israel, that God is going to bring us into the promised land and take possession of it. But look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what's it say? That Abram had this deep sleep fall on him. What are you doing in a deep sleep? Nothing. He's seeing these things in a vision, but is he getting up? No. Okay, he's seeing this stuff, but... He is uh, totally passive in this whole process. It's only God who is talking to Abram. And what happens? There's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. When we get to the book of Exodus, we're going to see that God reveals himself to Israel as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. So smoke and fire are, um, are symbols that we should instantly know this is God. This represents God. And now this is, um, for the nation of Israel, that was really, really big God. For Abram, this is God um, showing up in a, in a uh, you know, condensed way, um, but it's still fully God. And so what he sees is this flaming, uh, this smoking fire pot, and this flaming torch passing between the pieces. To remember, in the covenant, um, the way it was made between two people is they would hold hands and they would walk together through the pieces. But who is walking through the pieces? Just God. Okay? God is holding hands with himself, as it were. And he is walking through the pieces. And Abram is just walking, or just watching. What does that mean? That means that in the terms of this covenant, this is totally different than what Abram was expecting when he was thinking, okay, so I'm, I've got a part to play in this, and there's, and, you know, there's, there's this responsibility that I've got. No, this is so one-sided. God is just saying, I am just going to bless you. And he goes on, and he's very clear again. I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give them this land. And I see that there are all these enemies here. I'm going to hand all of those enemies over to them, and they're going to get all this land. I'm going to do all of these things to you, I promise. And if I fail to keep this promise... Let what happened to these animals happen to me. What is Abram's part in that? None. He's already had that part. Faith. That, was, that happened well before. And so this is, this is amazing. This is a covenant is built on loyalty. And God is saying, if I'm ever not loyal, let what happens to me, or let, what let happen to these animals happen to me. Okay, what kind of God would say that? But then the truth is, is the, as the, the story of the Bible unfolds, we see that God is never disloyal, but God's people often are. And so because of our disloyalty, we ought to be the ones that, that are treated the same way these animals are. We ought to be the ones that are killed. But in this covenant that God made with Abram, it's a covenant of grace that it, even here we see this picture that God will... Um, take the curse upon himself that is deserved with these, for these people that are, um, that are in this covenant. Does that make sense? Isn't that beautiful? This is, this is already a, an inkling of the gospel that God will have promised that Jesus is the offspring of Abram. And Jesus himself, God in the flesh, died the death that we deserve to die for our disloyalty as a way of accomplishing this covenant that was begun all the way back in the book of Genesis. It's, it is Remarkable, incredible. So, uh, these promises again. Chapter 16. 
Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Uh-oh. I love this. There's so much contrast. And you need to pay attention to the contrast. So God has made all these promises. I'm going to give you offspring. That's going to be... But then what? We get this still. Is this possible? Because Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So we already saw Abram being tempted to run to Egypt when he felt like God's promises were called into question. And he's trying to find a solution apart from God's plan. Um, now we see Sarai being discipled into that same lack of faith, into that same unbelief. And so Sarai hears uh, these promises, uh, you know, because surely Abram's been telling Sarai what's been going on. So Sarai says, look, the Lord has not given us any children, and so I've got a plan. Why don't you um, take my servant like a, another wife, and I may have obtained children by her. Now, in the ancient Near East, apart from God's, um, God's good plan, this kind of became a custom that women could use their servants as a means of um, kind of surrogating their, uh, their womb, okay? So that she could say, I can't have a child, but my servant will be kind of my stand-in, and that will, that will happen. And so she's thinking, this is impossible. I'm, you know, God has prevented this from happening. It's well past the time when it could happen, but he said that you're going to have offspring. And so maybe she started thinking, I don't, I, I think we need to help God out. I don't think God can do this on her own, or she's just, she just can't believe that it could happen any other way. And so she says, here, take, uh, take this servant and we'll obtain children by her. You think that's a good idea? We, this is one of those cases. Remember, I said that the Old Testament never prohibits explicitly polygamy, but it never goes well. Okay, how do you think this is like? Okay, we can't have kids, but try with her. That'll work. Yeah, right. So, look at this. At the end of uh, verse two, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. I think that's important. Abram didn't listen to the voice of the Lord, who has been talking to him this whole time, but he listened to the voice of his wife. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and Hagar conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So we don't know all of what that means. Don't have time to unpack it a whole lot, but um, this, like you would expect, led to a lot of tension, okay? And Sarai feels very hurt by the tension, feels very hurt by the fact that um, now Hagar thinks she's a better wife than Sarai is because she was able to conceive right away. And so Sarai is very hurt. She's very angry. She's very upset. And I'm like, what do you expect, Sarai? I mean, seriously. But Verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Again, Abram is, is not a perfect guy, right? He's not, none of us are. This is, the, this is who God works with. Is 
imperfect people making incredible promises and uh, giving them righteousness by faith because it's certainly not on his own. And so Abram's like, look, I don't care what happens to Hagar. You, you know, she's your servant. Do what you want. So then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar and Hagar fled from Sarai. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now this is actually cool. This is the first time the angel of the Lord ever speaks to a woman in the Bible. And it's not to Sarai, it is to Hagar. So again, just the way that God cared for Sarai, even when Abram didn't, God cares for Hagar, even when Abram and Sarai didn't. Okay, so God is much better than we are. But we already knew that, right? This is the kind of stuff that people want to point out in the Bible and say, you know, how horrible this would be in the Bible. But I never see God being anything but perfectly righteous and loving in this. And I see um, the Bible saying things about people that's true, okay? And, and that, we're, that we're bad people, that we are unrighteous. So she said, I'm fleeing from my servant Sarai. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy, that lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So um, God, even, even though his plan is to work through Sarai, as we're going to see, God cares for this, uh, this woman, Hagar, and the offspring that will come from Hagar, because, one, God's just good, and two, this is still Abram's son. And so do you see that the same language that you, that, that uh, I will, he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He's talking to Hagar. That's the same thing that he said to Abram. So this blessing that is on Abram just goes out everywhere. It's, it's you know, it's so abundant. And so uh, Hagar has a son named Ishmael. Now this matters a lot today because uh, there's a division between um, the descendant of Sarah and the descendant of Hagar. Okay, so we're going to get to the son of um, Sarah. Sorry, I just ruined the whole story. Sarah has a son. Um, but the son of Sarah and the son of Hagar go on both to be great nations. Ishmael is where um, the, the uh, Arab Muslim people trace their lineage out of. So they, they see uh, that God actually chose um, Ishmael instead of the son of Sarah and they think that Ishmael and the line of Ishmael is the one that receives the blessing of Abraham. Clearly not the case but um, all of the, if you study Islam, Islam traces itself back to Ishmael and I, you know, I don't want to be um, instigatory or anything like that but I do think it's very interesting if you look at the history of um, 
uh, the, the people that, that this is describing. Look at verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So that's describing a lot of strife coming from the descendants of Ishmael. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone would argue that that is an, an apt description of what we have seen coming out of the people of that region. Not that there's something inherently, you know, we're all, like we said, we're all unrighteous, but these descendants of Ishmael, the tribes that came out of Ishmael, have been marked by um, a lot of a lot of strife, okay? And that's, I think, coming right back from this, this tension that comes here. So, um, very, very interesting and very prophetic, I think, that, that we can see that God describing and God making these promises and that they do come true. So, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, 99 years old. Just stop. I mean, God came to Abram when he was 75. And now Abram is 99 years old. God came to Abram when he was 75 and made him these incredible promises. Okay? And one of them is true. You will be blessed. But promises of land and promises most of all of offspring, which really at this time is the most important thing. Okay? You, it didn't matter if you had, that's what he says. What, what good are all these blessings when I die? Everything that I have is going to go to Eliezer. At this time, the most important thing that you can have is offspring, is a lineage that would uh, perpetuate your name. Abram doesn't have that. The thing, the one thing that he wanted most, God said, I promise you're going to have this. And 24 years later, he still doesn't have it. Anybody in here 24? Okay, most of you aren't even 24. We have a hard time waiting 24 days for things that we want so desperately. Um, things that we should trust God to provide for us. Abram has been waiting for 24 years. So in, in light of that, the, the couple of instances where he kind of lacks faith or questions God in 24 years, I think is, is remarkable. But um, man, how are you going to do when God asks you to wait, uh, wait that long? Because that's how long Abram's been having to wait. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And I may, may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. 
Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut, cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is, uh, if, if the covenant forming that we saw in chapter 15 um, is, is this first instance of God coming and reaffirming and making this formal covenant, this, um, most people would think, is sort of a continuation of that. Some people would say that what happens in chapter 15 is sort of the engagement process, and this is when they you know, actually get married. So chapter 15 is, here's the engagement ring. Chapter 17 is when they come together. I have every reason to think, because it's the same promises, that this is God coming, and he's reaffirming, he's reestablishing, and, and he is um, making certain this covenant and giving it a, a, a sign, okay, a lasting sign, just like the... Um, just like the rainbow in the sky with Noah. Why this long period and why this reaffirming, why this re-engagement, why this God coming again and so often proving himself? Because this is how faith works, guys. This is how relationships work. It is built on a, um, a building uh, intimacy, a growing knowledge of the person that we are in a relationship with. And God is... God knows that it is necessary to grow Abraham's faith before it is tested. And that's where we're going to move into, and we talked about that last week, this testing of faith that God is making, trying to make Abram's faith very, very strong. And so he gives him this sign, which is also an act of obedience for Abraham, that they are to circumcise themselves. Now, circumcision is something that has existed um, for a, you know, outside of this, this is another symbol that God is appropriating. Although it's very interesting, um, this is a symbol that all of the nation of Israel descended from Abraham will wear. In Egypt, circumcision was only for the priests. Okay, that was a sign that delineated them from everybody else. So, in a way, we can already see that Israel is being set apart as a priestly nation. Remember Adam? Adam had a role as a priest, as a mediator of God. Uh, and his presence and his glory out to the creation. So this is already we're seeing God restoring and using um, symbols from the, the world around them to make a point that you guys are going to be priests. But um, circumcision, why circumcision? Well, there's a lot of, of factors into it, but big ones are what did, where did this covenant that God is making with Abram really has its main locus in um, Abram's loins. You know, that's what we saw, that you're going to have an offspring from your own loins. And so this is a way of saying, this is a promise to you that is uh, the promise of children through your seed, okay? And so that's that's why this is the, the logical place for that sign to be. Also, it's going to be really hard to forget that, okay? And these promises this, or this, this sign is meant to be a reminder of these promises, just like the rainbow is meant to be a reminder of God's promises to the whole earth after Noah. This is to be a promise to Abram and a remembrance that God will um, accomplish these purposes with God's offspring. And so the nation of Israel, the men of the nation of Israel, would have a perpetual reminder with them that they would see every day... Um, that, they, that, that God has made these promises to them, that they are still the covenant people of God. And God gives Abram a new name. We're going to see that with Sarai too. We'll talk about that next week. We'll stop here. But the point is that God is doing all of these things to um, reaffirm and revalidate these promises 
with Abram, and it's taken a long time because what is most important for God is not just giving Abram the things that he wanted his promise, but is developing in Abram a deep, true, lasting faith, a faith that will be imparted into his offspring, and a faith that all of us will share in, that we are saved by faith. And that faith is credited to us as righteousness. Righteousness won for us by um, the God that keeps his promises, that even steps in when we have been disloyal and dies in our place so that we can receive the benefits of these promises that he has made for us. So continue in that faith. Continue in the faith that God keeps and is able to fulfill his promises. Let's pray. God, thank you.